going to be at two texts today, so you may want to turn to both of them and keep your finger or a bookmark or something. Genesis 14 is the one we're working through historically, but the explanation of Genesis 14 is Hebrews chapter 7. So both texts. And at some point in the message, I'm going to switch completely, almost completely, to Hebrews chapter 7. Our text is Genesis 14, and we begin with this subject of this mystery person named Melchizedek. When I say he's a mystery figure, it's mystery in the biblical sense of not much being disclosed about him. I mean, look at it. He just pops on the scene out of nowhere, according to our text, and then just as mysteriously he fades out of history until he is revisited by the writer of Hebrews and in one other time referenced by King David in Psalm 110, verse 1 and following, which reads, Of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. Now, by piecing these three accounts together, a picture begins to emerge about Melchizedek, which puts some uh, flesh and muscle, if I could say it that way, on the bony skeleton that's portrayed in our text in Genesis 14. The first thing we encounter is in the name Melchizedek itself. We've learned in our study of biblical characters that their names have meaning. So what can we learn about the name Melchizedek? Well, the first thing we learn is that it's not a name. It's a title. It means king of righteousness, or more literally, my king is righteous. The same applies to our Savior as well, whom we call Jesus Christ. The word Christ is not a surname like Jones, for example, if we were to speak of Walter Jones. No, it's not that at all. Jesus is a proper name, Yeshua, Joshua, Savior, but the word Christ is a title, meaning the anointed one. And, of course, the implication is means it's anointed, he's anointed by God. Thus, Jesus, the anointed one. In modern-day parlance, we skip the translation and we just say, Jesus Christ. Speaking of him as though having a surname. The name holds true with Melchizedek. It's not a name at all, but fully a title. King of Righteousness. This indicates to us that Melchizedek is a man who is unidentified. We know his character. He is a righteous person, but we do not know 
who he is. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's the first three verses in Hebrews 7. All right, how can a person be a person and not have any roots? On Ancestry.com, people do searches in the electronic archives of public records throughout Europe, throughout England, and so on, and other nations, trying to discover the names or the occupations of their relatives and to see if there is any information on the migration of their family to America. Now, why do they do this? Well, <laughs> very frankly, they're trying to discover their roots, their history, their connection to a nationality or a race or to uh, a family patriarch or a family matriarch, as the case may be. And it gives a sense of belonging, of purpose. Jared was talking about that in the adult class when he's talking about the family of God. Because many names reveal actually uh, family trades, too. Take, for example, the name Smith. By the way, there are over 2 million people in the United States with the last name of Smith. It's the most common of all of our names. Well, it's an abbreviation. Smith is an abbreviated rendering of blacksmith. That is, a person who works with metal. Later, that was shortened to Smith. And people will say, oh, well, you'll find the Smith down there by the corral, and he'll be able to repair the broken shoe on your horse. So go see the Smith. But none of this applies to the title of Melchizedek. We learn that he is a righteous man, but nothing of his ancestry. In fact, we are told from the Hebrews text that he had no father, he had no mother, not literally, but without genealogy. There's no way to ascertain his ancestry. And you know, the Bible is big on genealogies. So here's a guy that has none. You won't find him in the list of anybody's genealogy. And the same holds true for his second title, verse 18. He's called the king of Salem. The writer of Hebrews gives the translation. King of Salem means king of peace. Hebrews 7, verse 2. Salem. At earlier it was Shalem, Shalem, from Shalom. A word indicating fullness or completeness, hence peace, at rest because fullness has arrived. The work is finished. It is a very early name for the city of Jerusalem. What about the Jeru part? Well, 
Jeshurun, J-E-S-H-U-R-U-N, Jeshurun, is an early name for Israel found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, and it means the upright one. Used there, uh, however, speaking of how the upright one was rebelling against God. But later, in later times, it was Jeshurun. Get it? Jeshurun. Righteousness and peace wedded together. And so these two titles, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, when combined with verse 18 of our text, which identifies Melchizedek as priest of God Most High, is a, indicates that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Type meaning an Old Testament model of Christ. He is priest of the Most High God who ushers in righteousness and peace through his priestly work of atonement for sin. Of the promised Christ child, Isaiah tells us that as an adult, his administration will be characterized as a reign of justice and righteousness. Isaiah 9, verse 7. And that one of his names will be Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. You know, it can be no other way. There is no peace where injustice and unrighteousness rule in the land. But everything good comes to people living under the rule of righteousness. Men long for peace, they say. <laughs> But they continue in the very wickedness which destroys all semblance of peace. We see, the, we see this in the Islamic attacks of present-day terrorists who say their religion stands for peace, but jihad, holy war, is anything but peaceful. A righteous and just rule brings peace to the land. There's no other way. Christ Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace. So the first thing we learn about Melchizedek is there's some mystery to him because we don't know who he is. We know his titles. We know his positions, both in the secular world and in the spiritual world. King of Salem, Jerusalem. Spiritual word, priest of the Most High God, yes? Both offices are his, but we don't know who he is. And that brings us to our second point in the outline there, the characteristics or superiority of Melchizedek. Now here's where I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7. The first thing we learn in Hebrews 7, is that Melchizedek has an unknown parentage. It says, without father, without mother. Greek, apator, a meaning not, pator, father, amator, not a mother. This, these terms, apator, amator, are Greek terms that were used for orphans for children 
of unknown origin, usually for those considered unimportant and insignificant. I think street urchins like, uh, like the children the Lees work with in Bucharest. Now, they have parents, yeah, but they are nowhere to be found. And in the case of Melchizedek, there's no birth certificate, there's no public registry, verse 3. It says, without genealogy. This is very, very odd. The man holds, think about this now, he holds a high civil office, king of Salem. Even more, he is priest of God Most High, Genesis 14, verse 18. How does an unknown person with no personal history aspire to and obtain such influential positions? You know the Jews were fastidious about record-keeping. They counted heads <laughs> in every aspect of life. Tribes, military service, families, vocations, you name it. Our Bible contains many such genealogies. After the exile under Babylon in later years, the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland, and Nehemiah 7 lists all the categories of the returnees. I'm just going to list some of them for you. Priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and, you know, after those titles, and then it lists all the people that are under those titles, and so on and so on. But, now listen, at the end of the list of priests, a number of families were named, but we learn, and I'm reading scripture now, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Nehemiah 7, verse 63. You don't find, you can't find your records? Sorry, Saranara, you're out of here. Nothing personal, that's just the way it is. You say you're a priest, you say you belong to the priestly family of Levi, but you can't prove it. Where's the records? Where's the genealogy? And they could not provide them. And so they were excluded from serving. Yet here we are in Genesis 14 with a man named Melchizedek who from Hebrews 7 we learn has no record of father, no record of mother, no genealogy at all, and yet he serves as priest of God Most High. What gives? Look carefully at Hebrews 7 and verse 3 where the writer says of Melchizedek that he is, NIV says, like the Son of God. The Greek word emphasizes to be made like or to be molded after. King James Version has that, New King James, American Standard Version. They all say made like, better translation. ESV, English Standard Version, says resembling the Son of God. You say, well, what's your point? In biblical typology, we consider characteristics in a person that point to some characteristic about Christ. For example, let me give you one. David, whose kingdom was advanced through Solomon, his son, was promised, I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. But you know, David died. And Solomon died. And what is more, all their heirs died as well. Until we come to Jesus' genealogy, which portrays him as David's descendant. And Isaiah prophesied of this child, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, verse 7. Hence we conclude, here it is, that David was a type of Christ because the promises made to him are fulfilled in the coming king, namely Jesus. So David is earthly king over God's people, typifying the kingship of Jesus over God's people. And in all this, David is the model or type of the coming Christ. Now, what we have in Hebrews 7, verse 3, is the direct opposite. Christ and his priestly ministry is not patterned after Melchizedek, but, verse 3, Christ is the pattern for Melchizedek. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. And that is why there is no record of parentage and no genealogy. We're not talking about Jesus' physical ancestry here. We're talking about his divinity. So the first thing is, that he doesn't have a parentage expressed and no genealogy. The second virtue or characteristic is even a little more revealing. It says, without beginning of days or end of life, made like the Son of God, verse 3. Notice here that the writer of Hebrews is referencing Jesus in his pre-incarnation days. Not as a baby. He's not talking about Jesus being born to Mary and Joseph. If we're going to talk about Jesus as a human being, we know he had a birthday and we know he had a dying day, as is true of all human beings. It's only in his true nature as the Son of God that we can speak of Jesus as without beginning of days or end of life, for which Melchizedek has been modeled. Because Jesus as the Son of God has no beginning and has no end, but is eternal. Melchizedek, to whom Jesus' priesthood is attached, is portrayed by the writers of Scripture as having no father, no mother, no genealogy whatsoever. Christ alone is eternal, having no beginning, no end. And so, if Melchizedek is to represent Jesus' priestly work, his human genealogy, his human ancestry, also must remain in the dark. See the pattern here. Jesus is priest of God Most High, but he is also as the Son of God, which he is so by as the virtue of the being Son of God, which leads to this third characteristic. Verse three: He remains a priest forever. 
How unusual is it for a priest to hold his office, think about this, forever? You say, well, (laughs) Pastor, that is impossible because priests are just like any human beings. They get old, they die. This is true. The writer of Hebrews devotes some time saying the same thing. But in so doing, he speaks only of the Levitical priesthood. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 11 and following. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Hebrews 7, verse 11. He hints that there's a problem here. There were two major problems with the priests who came from the tribe of Levi. Problem number one, they were all sinners trying to make atonement for other sinners. That's problem number one. Hebrews 5, just turn back, flip back a page there. Hebrews 5, the first two verses. Every high priest is selected from among men as an appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. The first three verses there of Hebrews chapter 5. This is all we ministers are, brethren. We, uh, we are sinners serving other sinners. That's, that's what we are. No perfection in life. No perfection in service. But what is the standard from God which cannot, from which he cannot relent? It is as Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. It's impossible for you it's impossible for me. It's impossible for every born, everyone that is born into the human race. It's impossible for the Levitical priests in their representative capacity. They too were sinners, and that's the first problem of their service. That means everything they touch, in some sense, is blighted. Second problem, and it's related to the verse. As sinners, they all eventually die. Hebrews 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. What is he saying? He's saying death is the grim reaper who ends not only people's lives, but their service. Their work stops when their heart stops. And if we know anything about earthly life, we know that it is fragile, it is, it's weak, it's temporal. James pointed this out in his epistle. He, he put it very succinctly. He asked the question, what is your life? James asks, what is your life? And then he answers his own question. You are a mist that appears for a little while. And then vanishes. You're just a fog. You're just a vapor. 
James 4, verse 14. Why is that? For the wages of sin is death. Romans 3, verse 23. And we're all sinners. So that's where we're headed to death. So we need a different kind of priest, don't we? We need a priest who, chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 26, is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, which means he's not a sinner, exalted above the heavens. As we read on, unlike, that is different from, the other high priests, those sinful priests of the Levitical line, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then the sins of the people. He sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself. So Melchizedek represents this enduring priesthood because not only is there no record of his beginning, chapter 7, verse 3 of Hebrews, there's no record of his end of life. Do you see that in the text here? We could say it this way. There's no birth certificate. And there's no death certificate. There's no funeral. There's no account of a burial. Why? He's made like the Son of God. So he remains a priest forever. Now understand here that the writer of Hebrews is not, he is not portraying Jesus in his humanity at this point. But he is portraying Jesus in his divinity. Though he referenced Jesus' death, his emphasis is on Jesus' life and in particular, living forever. Thus, his priesthood is forever. This is a priest that doesn't die. This is a priest that never relinquishes his service. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3. And there is no earthly priest like this, except Jesus. We can be thankful. Now that brings us then to the implications of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The first thing we look at, he stands superior to any earthly priest before God in his person. In his person. Hebrews 7 verse 4 sets the stage for reflection. The writer says, just think how great he, Melchizedek, was. Just think how great he was. Now he's going to tell us. Even the patriarch Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the plunder. That harks back to our text in Genesis 14 where Abraham paid the tithe of the booty that he recovered in the battle against the Syrian Federation. Well, how does Abram paying tithes to Melchizedek demonstrate the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. Verse 5. The law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people. This man, Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descendants from Levi, and yet collected a tenth from Abraham, 
and blessed him. Without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. I want you to follow the logic here. Sometimes people think Christianity uh, doesn't use its brains. But the writer of Hebrews is saying to use your brain. There's something logical that's going on here. And the logic here is the fact that Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek means that Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham, the lesser paying or being subservient to the greater. Melchizedek must be a greater personage than Abraham because he is the one doing the blessing and collecting tithes, and Abraham is the recipient of the blessing and paying the tithes. It's all very logical, isn't it? Makes sense. Oh, it gets better. Look at verse 9. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Hebrews 7, verse 9 and 10. Now, don't, don't get lost here. See what he's just saying. Levi and all of his descendants were not even born yet. Yet, they were present in seminal form as the seed of Abraham. We don't normally think about these things, but he's making us think. How does the actions of others in the family affect us today or in the future? Suppose my grandfather had... Um, taken out an insurance policy on my yet-to-be-born children. He paid the premiums, he signed the contracts, and he registered in a trust account before any of my kids were born. Yet his actions would be credited to them when the policy paid out. They would owe their inheritance, their blessing, to him, though done generations ago before they were ever born. Things are done by, that, by people like that all the time. You see how logical this all is. How rational. The writer of Hebrews is asking you and me to just think. Use your brains on how great Melchizedek was. Hebrews 7 verse 4. You're not being asked to accept this by faith alone, but by piecing the historical facts together to arrive at a rational conclusion. Now, you're still going to need faith. That has to be present because, as you know, the skeptics of the Bible will twist or denigrate the historical facts to discredit God's word. Jesus is the priest who supersedes any earthly priest, including those of Levi, Levi represents the lesser paying homage to the greater personage. And it's in this text. Secondly, we learn that Jesus stands superior in his service as a priest. Not only in his person, but in his service. What's the task of a priest? Hebrews 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, 
to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the priest's job. But, as we have seen, every earthly priest is a sinner himself, whose service before God is blighted by his own failures. So how can he help me in the end? His failure is accentuated by his death, proving that sin nailed his coffin shut, just as sin is going to nail my coffin shut. So where's the hope in that? The dead priest not even help themselves. How is his service going to help me? The writer of Hebrews is arguing for longevity in the priest representing us because he believes that sustaining the blessing of atonement and salvation depends upon an ever effectual ministry. He's already paved the way for us to see this demonstrated in that Melchizedek is depicted in Scripture as having no beginning of days and no end of life, verse 3. How probable is that with earthly priests? It's not only improbable, it's impossible because all men die, and when they die, that's the end of their service. That's the end of their influence over those they represent. And it is at this very point where the writer takes his stand. Look at verse 15. We're in Hebrews 7. Verse 15 and following. And what we have said is even more clear, he writes, if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, no, no, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's where the power of his service For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law, made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7, verse 15 through 19. The better hope is the better priest (laughs) under God. That's our better hope. Now, did you know that Jesus, as our high priest before God, has, can I say it this way, a continuing ministry on our behalf? We've all taken comfort in Jesus' words from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. But that statement addressed the subject of atonement for sin and the finality of Jesus' cross work. The writer of, of Hebrews words it this way, chapter 10, verse 12 and following, but when this priest, speaking of Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, verse 12 through 14. Yeah, we we see in his words the finality of the cross work. But atonement is only part of the priest's service. God speaking through Isaiah foretold, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's atonement. He bore the sins of many. That's atonement. And, here it is, made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Atonement, cross work, yes. But the second work of a priest, intercession. You're in Hebrews 7, look at verse 25. Speaking of Christ, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Wow, did you know that? We have a living mediator between God and us who prays for you, who prays for me. He intercedes before the Father on behalf of all of his children. It says in our text, always lives to intercede. It's like the incense in the tabernacle that was never permitted to be extinguished. And as the smoke of that incense went up, God heard the prayers of his people praying outside the tent. And on one particular day, he heard the prayers of a priest named Zechariah concerning his wife Elizabeth, who had a child. And John the Baptist was Elizabeth. Well, our priest always lives to make intercession for us. Thirdly, we note that Jesus stands superior as our high priest in that his priesthood was confirmed by an oath of God. An oath. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 19 and 20. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn, he will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Very strange, don't you think, that God would take an oath about anything? Why would God take a, an oath? He is truth personified. Hebrews 6 verse 16 explains, Men swear by someone greater than themselves. That's the oath. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. We would hope so anyway, right? You're having an argument with someone. He thinks you're not telling the truth. You say, I am telling the truth. Back and forth you go, you know you're not, no you're not. I swear by God Almighty that I'm telling you the truth. Silence. Suddenly, the person, well, maybe he is telling the truth. <laughs> how, how would he dare to swear before God Almighty if he were lying through his teeth? So that's what the writer's saying. 
Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath, that confirms what is said. And it ends the argument. Now, let me read on. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this, I'm still reading, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, namely his promise and his oath, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul, firm and secure, It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, verse 16 through 20. See how this Melchizedek thing keeps coming back. He's superior in every way to the Levitical priests. And he confirmed his promises to us by taking oath. Verse 13 of Hebrews 6 says that God couldn't find anyone higher than himself to swear by. So what did he do? He swore by himself. As I indeed am God, I am promising you intercession. Whew, a lot of meat here. How many priests were there in the Levitical priesthood? In the days of Moses, 22,000. Numbers numbers 3, verse 39. 22,000 in the days of Moses. In the days of the monarchy under David before the captivity, 38,000. 1 Chronicles 23, verse 3. 22,000, then it's up to 38,000. Why so many? Verse 23 Death prevented them from continuing in office. That's why so many. Pretty clear. Okay. How many priests were there in the Melchizedek order? One. One. How can that be? Verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You only need one if he's never going to die. You only need one if he's going to ever live to intercede. You only need one if his sacrifice has been accepted by God the Father as the final payment. It is finished. You only need one. well he's just a priest have you been listening this morning he's priest of the most high God he's the king of righteousness and justice and so his priesthood has a ruling dimension king 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 get it 
ruling, ruling, ruling. This is a ruling priest. Jesus put it this way in John 5. He says, The Father has entrusted all judgment to his Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. John 5, 22 and 23. Paul put it this way. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. What happens when you die and leave your body? Well, if you die in your sins without repentance, without trusting in Jesus alone for your intercessor and redeemer, Hebrews 10 verse 31, then it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what happens. But, and here's the great hope, if you die, if you die washed in the blood of Jesus, atoning sacrifice of himself, then this one Melchizedek priest becomes to you king of Salem, prince of peace. And your death brings you face to face with your savior, with your redeemer, with your advocate of peace before God and not before a condemnatory judge. So what's it going to be for you this morning? Coming to Christ now in repentance and faith in him. Knowing that you need his sacrifice of the cross and also his intercessory work as God's high priest. None of this is accidental. Um, Melchizedek comes out of nowhere and fades into nowhere. He's like genealogy, without parent, without father, without mother, without beginning of days, and without end of life. Therefore, his permanent is a permanent priesthood. And all men are going to stand before this ruling priest. And God is going to say, what have you done with my son and his sacrifice? for you to have your sins forgiven and covered and erased in, in the blood of Christ. I had a priest for you that would pray prayers that God the Father had to answer because they were always prayers according to the will of God. What did you do with this priest? Yes, what did we do indeed? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray your blessing upon it. We're thankful to read that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. You became the pattern for his life because his life was to represent a ruling priest, a priest of righteousness, a priest of peace wedding the two together. How our world needs righteousness and peace. There is no righteousness, so there is no peace. And in our own personal lives, we struggle with unrighteousness 
and sin. And that is the times in our lives when we are most unsure of ourselves, most disheartened and full of worry and anxiety, and we have no peace when our sin is ever about us. We need righteousness and peace, and that's found only in Christ. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who today are living out their faith and dying for their faith because they understand that principle. They give up Jesus, they give up the Prince of Peace. They renounce Christ, they renounce his righteousness being credited to their account. They can stand before a holy God in no other way, so they will not renounce you. And we know that that is your grace to them, that they do not renounce you. But still it's hard for us to read and to hear in the news of the enemies of the cross whose delight is in death and torture and mayhem. O oh God, they fight not just against your people, but against you. Every murder, every rape, every torture is recorded in your book. We're going to have to stand someday before this Prince of Peace, this King of Righteousness, this Priest of the Most High God. And Lord, our neighbors are in no better state so may we be bold in telling them of Christ and of his salvation. Our relatives are in no better state. They need to hear the truth as well. How forgiving you are. How magnificent you are in your mercy. You even took an oath to make sure that we are sure that if we put our trust in you, we have a guarantee, a guarantee of your love and salvation. But we're so stubborn. I pray that you will melt our stubbornness. Grant us that faith that we need and trust. May you push us, Lord Jesus, to yourself. Draw us by your spirit, we pray. For your glory and our good.